We have two scripture readings tonight, first from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to the end of the chapter, and um, the sermon that I will be bringing to you this evening was uh, prepared by Reverend Wes Bradenhoff, who is a pastor of a free reformed church in Australia. I could not pronounce the name of the town, so I left that off. Um, just a note that he, he prepared it using the ESV, so I've, um, I have tried to use New King James um, references throughout the sermon, but you might notice some differences. Um, so Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25, let's give our careful attention to God's holy word. This is uh, Jesus speaking on the Sermon of the Mount, I should mention. Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? Verse 28. So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God, And his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And then turning back to Psalm 27. reading the entire psalm, but our focus will be the first three verses and the last two verses. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumble and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life 
to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart, unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Beloved congregation of Christ Jesus, someone once said that the most dishonest time in a worship service is during the singing. When we open our hymn books, we take words on our lips that we might never say to God in private, words that we might not even be sure we believe. Take this psalm, for instance. We've sung Psalm 27 in church many times. In stanza one, we sing, While God my strength, my life sustains, secure from fear my soul remains. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, we know that fear is a big part of who we are, what we do, what we think, and what we say. In many ways, fear grips us, and sometimes we don't even realize it. Perhaps it's fear of things that we can't control. Perhaps it's fear of other people. Maybe it's fear of failure. Go further and think of all the different sorts of phobias that exist. Phobias from the Greek phobos, which means fear or horror. Maybe you fear going to the dentist. That would make you an odontophobia. Afraid of heights, that would make you an acrophobiac, or perhaps an irrational fear of stickiness, especially sweet stickiness. That's called mixophobia. There's also such a thing as a fear of fears, phobophobia. This is actually more common than you might imagine. 
If you look on the internet, there are huge lists of phobias, and I'm sure you could find a few to call your own. Because there are an infinite number of objects and situations in this world, the number of specific phobias is always increasing. As Sir Francis Bacon once quipped, there is a limit to pain, but there is no limit to fear. There is a reason why God's most frequent command in Scripture is, do not be afraid, or words to that effect. You'll find that in the Bible over 300 times, do not be afraid. That tells you something about God. He knows our fears and is alert to them. Not only that, but when he says, do not fear, those are not the casual, wishful thinking words of a mere mortal. Rather, when God says, do not fear, he is the one who can not only speak, but act. In Jesus Christ, he is our Father, the one who loves us deeply. He is our King, the one who has unlimited power, authority, and dominion. He is generous, giving his children everything they need, and doing so out of pleasure and delight. Our generous Father and King comes to us with his word this evening and leads us into yet greener pastures of his revelation. We may be people filled with fears, but God gives us Psalm 27 as a prayer, a vision of who we can and will become. As a prayer or vision, we'll see that it can indeed be read, sung, and prayed honestly by God's people. Well, we'll have an eye on the entire psalm. We're going to be especially concentrating on the verses at the beginning and the end. As we do that, we'll see that there is a confession here, a confession of confidence and yet more confidence. We'll consider three aspects of this. Number one, the cornerstone of this confidence. What is it built on? Number two, the contours of this confidence, or the form or shape of this confidence. And number three, the consequences of this confidence, how it changes our lives. We're not sure what the historical background to the psalm might be. That happens more often in the psalms and tells us that God designed many of the psalms to be directly and universally applicable. From a Korowai Christian woman in Papua, Indonesia, to a French Christian man in France, to a Canadian Christian child, the psalms speak to God's people from every culture in every age and place. God's people in every era and in every culture have had their fears. In this particular psalm, the fears have to do with other people, enemies who are literally trying to kill David. David is facing the fear of these enemies. Faced with that fear, David begins and ends his psalm with a focus on Yahweh. Remember that LORD, in all capital letters in your Bible, is Yahweh in Hebrew. David uses God's personal covenant name, both at the beginning and end of the psalm. Yahweh is literally the first word in the original Hebrew and also the last. So verse 1, 
Yahweh is my light and my salvation. What does it mean that Yahweh is our light? Light means safety and the ability to see what's really going on around you. Light is what makes everything clear. Light prevents or mitigates confusion and chaos. Enemies prefer to attack under the cover of darkness, enhancing the element of surprise. And light also means life. It's a metaphor for truth. It means the banishment of all evil. And so Yahweh is all of those things. God dwells in unapproachable light. He is the one who will not have evil in his presence. God is the one in whom there is no darkness. He is truth. He is the source of all life. Where God is present, there are no surprise attacks. Where God is present, there is no confusion or chaos. Yahweh gives safety, and he gives the eyes of faith to see that he is in control. Yahweh is the light of his people, and he is also their salvation. Here it's really tempting to say, we all know what that's about, so let's just assume it and move forward. But loved ones, all kinds of mischief happens when we begin to assume the gospel. So let's reflect again and delight again in what it means that God is our salvation. Let's take our starting point with David, the human author of this psalm. David lived in the promised land. God had promised that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In the time of the Exodus, God led his people like a mighty warrior. Think of Jericho and the mighty walls that came crashing down. What about that time Yahweh caused the sun and moon to stand still? This was the defeat of the Amorites. Joshua 10, verse 11. As they fled before Israel on the road down from Beth Horon to Azekah, the Lord, Yahweh, hurled large hailstones down on them from the sky, and more of them died from the hailstones than were killed by the swords of the Israelites. We read that Yahweh heard the prayer of Joshua and lengthened the day till the victory was complete. And we read in Joshua 10, verse 14, There has never been a day like it since or before, a day when the Lord listened to a man. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. When David wrote that Yahweh was his salvation, these are the sorts of things he would have in mind. God is more powerful than all his enemies put together. No one can stand against him. And as we read these words, we know that they're even more meaningful today. We can rejoice in God's mighty deeds in battle in the Old Testament, but we can rejoice even more in God's victories in the New Testament. Jesus conquered sin and death. Yahweh is our salvation. Our Lord Jesus has victory over the curse of sin, over Satan, over the world, over our sinful nature, we see it in the Gospels, but elsewhere in the New Testament as well. In fact, just to take one book, the whole message of the book of Revelation can be summed up in two words. 
Jesus wins. So Yahweh is David's and our light and salvation. He is also the stronghold of his life. In the ancient world, strongholds were safe places that were relatively easy to defend against attackers. Strongholds were usually built on high mountains and had thick walls, sometimes up to 15 feet thick. Strongholds were meant to be impenetrable and intimidating. And did you know that most of the times that the Bible speaks about strongholds, it's not about the literal physical stronghold that men might build, but about God. This is one of the most common and yet powerful ways that scripture speaks about God. God is the unshakable strength that no enemy can ever threaten. Enemies have to learn that God is not defeatable. They have to learn that God is someone that they should be intimidated by. Yahweh is the stronghold of the believer's life. When we trust in God, we are in his stronghold, in his loving care and protection, safe. Now, all that being the case, we can make David's prayer our own. Whom shall we fear? Of whom shall we be afraid? We pray that God would make us realize that ultimately we have nothing to fear. Our vision is that we would become people who can see the big picture and be confident that our Father is always there. In the midst of our fears, the worst thing that can happen is tunnel vision. When you have tunnel vision, you can only see one set of facts, and you're fixed on those. Nothing else exists besides those facts. Right at the beginning, as we pray and sing this psalm, we ask God to take off the blinders so that our vision becomes expanded, so that we can see all the facts, most of all, that Yahweh is our light and our salvation, our stronghold. And with that expanded vision comes confidence, the knowledge that sets our souls at ease. Yahweh is the cornerstone of David's confidence, as he must be the cornerstone of our confidence. That confidence takes on more contours as it enters into the concrete world of flesh and blood in verse 2. This is also our second point. David imagines evil men advancing against him with animal-like or perhaps even cannibalistic aggression. They want to eat his flesh. He imagines his adversaries getting ready to pile on top of him to crush him. David says that when they come out, they're going to stumble and fall. God will make these fierce enemies into klutzes. David is supremely confident in who God is and what God will do. He knows that Yahweh is all those things we saw from verse 1. But here with faith he sees what Yahweh will accomplish. He has a vision for God's victory as an essential part of his confidence. He has a vision for the humiliation and defeat of the enemy. 
Now what about with us? Well, consider that if God can be trusted to cripple life-threatening flesh and blood enemies, then certainly he can be trusted with all the worries and fears that you and I face day in and day out. If he can be trusted to take care of physical attackers, you can trust him to take care of your financial future. You can trust him to do right with your family. You can trust him to take care of all your daily needs. You can trust him with all these relatively small things. Taking things further, the gospel teaches us that we can trust God not only to take care of the small stuff and our human enemies, but also the enemy with a capital E. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 tells us that the devil is our enemy. And he's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He intends to do us harm. At the cross, it appeared he had the victory. It appeared that he had destroyed the Son of God. But just as Haman, the enemy of the Jews, hung on his own gallows, which he intended for Mordecai, so also the cross was the undoing of the devil. God humiliated and defeated Satan. The cross of Christ was God's victory. It was Christ's victory, and it's our victory too. It's not only our victory over Satan, but also the place where we find propitiation, where God's wrath is turned away, the cross is where God ceases to be our enemy and his favor comes upon us. It was the Lord Jesus who said in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The cross dispels the fear of God's wrath and condemnation and reminds us of what Christ says a couple of verses further in Matthew 10. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. In the middle of this psalm, David works out further what it looks like to have the big picture straight. The big picture is that the most important thing is to desire God and his presence. Let me repeat that. The big picture is that the most important thing is to desire God and his presence. The big picture given here tells us about the beauty of Yahweh. That we should be distracted from our earthly worries and concerns through obsession with God, a longing to gaze upon his beauty, to dwell in intimate fellowship with him. Verse 4. David could only hope for the opportunity to see God's beauty, but we can see it everywhere, in the New Testament, in Christ, and we have his spirit living in us. Because we live on this side of the cross, the big picture is even more clear. God is even more beautiful, and there is all the more reason to desire him, to have us, sorry, to have him live close to us. <clears throat> Then in verses 7 to 12, David addresses Yahweh directly. 
Before this, he has been speaking to us and himself about Yahweh. Now he speaks directly to him. As we pray our prayers each day, Psalm 27 also presents a model or paradigm for us. How often don't we just trot out our grocery list when we pray? I need this, I pray for that, I ask for something else. To be sure, God wants us to do that. He wants us to pray for everything we need. He wants us to intercede for others and also to share with him our fears, worries, and anxieties. But what about taking our starting point in adoration for God, remembering who he is and what he's done? That's a challenge for us, isn't it? It becomes a challenge when we're too worldly and we've absorbed the world's self-centeredness. It also becomes a challenge when we so easily forget about all that God has done in Scripture and in our lives. We don't often meditate on God's victories in the Old Testament, and if we're not familiar with them, they don't come easily to mind as we pray. There are other factors, too, but whatever this may be, whatever they may be, this psalm is like the Lord's Prayer. Like the Lord's Prayer, Psalm 27 challenges us, teaching us to pray differently, to more often postpone our requests and intercessions until we've remembered the character of God. David did that when he brought his requests before God. He asked God to hear his voice. He asked God not to hide his face or to reject him or forsake him. He asked God to teach him, to lead him in a straight path. He asked Yahweh not to turn him over to the desire of his enemies, those who were breathing out violence. Verse 13 is David's amen to his prayer. He says that he is still confident that he will see God's goodness in the land of the living. He was confident before but he's even more confident now. And that word confidence in Hebrew is related to that familiar Hebrew word, amen. Amen is a word of faith and confidence that we add at the end of our prayers. It doesn't just mean the prayer is over. The Catechism gets it right when it says that amen means that it's true and certain For God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire this of him. Here in Psalm 27, David says, I can say my amen to this. I will see God's goodness in the land of the living. David is confident that God will not only be his light, salvation, and stronghold in the hereafter, but also in the here and now. In the brokenness of daily existence, God is there and he cares. Even in the messiness of our day-to-day lives, God's goodness never fails. We may struggle with believing that. We may have our doubts and fears, but notice what God is doing in this psalm. He's holding out a confession that he wants you to be able to make. He speaks to your fearful heart. 
your heart that perhaps doubts and questions, wonders whether he is really near and whether he is really good. He says, take these words on your lips and make them your prayer and vision. This is the person you want to be. And if you doubt my goodness, look to Christ and what he did for you at Golgotha. Brothers and sisters, the goodness of Yahweh came to the land of the living in the obedient life and in the suffering and death of Jesus. The goodness of Yahweh came to the land of the living in the obedient life and in the suffering and death of Jesus. It didn't happen in some fairy tale land in a galaxy far away a long time ago. It happened in the land of the living, a real wooden cross on a rocky outcrop that's still there, even if we don't know exactly where. There was real red blood and gore. It was as real as any news item you might have read in yesterday's newspaper. The goodness of Yahweh in the land of the living. He really died so that we might eternally enjoy the land of the living in the age to come. At the conclusion of the psalm, verse 14, we see David turning to us and leaving us with some commands. These are the only direct commands in the psalm. He says, wait for Yahweh. He calls believers to trust God, to carry on, to carry through on what he has promised. Now, when we're anxious and worried, we want immediate relief. We want results sooner rather than later. But sometimes God might delay. He'll do that to give us time to trust him, to grow in faith and dependence on him. So we're called to wait for Yahweh, to remember his promises and wait in hope for him to act. That's one consequence of this confidence. The other is found in the middle of verse 14. Be of good courage. Those are familiar Old Testament words. They're the words that Moses spoke to Joshua as he handed over the leadership of Israel. They're the words that God himself spoke to Joshua in Joshua 1. They're the same words that Joshua, in turn, spoke to the people of Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. And the Lord Jesus speaks similar words to his disciples when he gives them the Great Commission, reminding and assuring them of his presence. These sorts of words are intertwined with the carrying out of an office and calling. They remind believers of the great redemptive events of the past. As we look to the past, especially to what God has done in his Son, that gives encouragement for the future. Be of good courage. Those words encourage us in all the offices and callings that we have as believers. We're called to be prophets, priests, and kings. Many of us are called to be parents and grandparents. And then some of us are also called to the special offices of the church as pastors, elders, and deacons. These words address all of us. 
encouraging us to be strong and take heart. Joshua had an enormous weight placed on his shoulders. The people of Israel were given an impossible task. The Canaanites and the Philistines were people to be afraid of. They had superior firepower and tactical and strategic advantages. If anybody had a reasonable reason to be afraid and worried, it would be Joshua and the Israelites. From a strictly human perspective, their fears were not irrational. They were outgunned, outpositioned, and outnumbered. The command came to them. Be strong and take heart. Be strong and very courageous. This psalm begins with Yahweh and ends with Yahweh. Wait for Yahweh. Whatever situations in life we're faced with, whatever our fears, anxieties, and worries, God tells us to wait for him. Trust that he will bring us through them and out of them. Yahweh is your light, your salvation, your stronghold. Look to Christ, and you know it's true. Amen.